13. And today I'll be reading for you out of Acts 13. And I'm going to overlap a little bit from last week by reading verse 42 to the end of the chapter, verse 52. Hear now the very word of the Lord. As they went out, this is Paul and Barnabas, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after meeting, the meeting of the synagogue broke up. Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, may it be that as this word is proclaimed, that we would hear it, that we would respond with rejoicing, glorifying the word that you have given us, and that we would believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I was reading a few articles recently about what people look for when they are looking for a church to be a part of. And, and it was encouraging that most of the articles that I read, they seem to have very faithful components. But one of the themes that I noticed that whenever these articles explain the right doctrine of the word, that they quickly, and usually in the same paragraph, always wanted to make sure that it was qualified with a very clear understanding that there would be grace and mercy, and that there would be an approach of love. Now, we have that in the scriptures, that we are to admonish one another in truth, in love, and so it's a biblical concept. But I read in all of these articles, it was almost that they could not mention the word right doctrine, or truth, or the word of God, without trying to make sure that it was very clear in the minds of people that there had to be this presentation of love and grace. Now, I don't mean to admonish those articles at all, but I thought it was interesting that there was, it seemed to be from, and maybe it's my own template of reading, that there was a bit of fear in that. 
And maybe many of you would feel the same way, that there is this mindset out there to have right doctrine is not good in of itself, that there has to be a component measured in that. The problem with that is that, that would, if it does not have that love and have that presentation and proclamation of grace and mercy, it no longer continues to be right doctrine. And so it's a bit redundant to even say that, but it is a teaching tool and a helpfulness to understand that there is ways to assume that there is right doctrine without love. In this particular narrative today, even though there's no mention of love in it, it is important for us to see what is highlighted in this passage. There's a stark change, not a contrast in the sense of a different doctrine being taught. Last week, we was really focused on the resurrection of the dead, really focused on how Jesus did not face corruption, very focused on how all of these things bring about the forgiveness of sin. But today, there is something being highlighted very continually And it is being articulated in a certain way that there's responses to this thing that will give us an indication of whether this is the right way of doing it. I know it's kind of a vague intro because I wanted to ask the question, what do you see repeated more than anything else in this particular narrative that's highlighted? What theme or what word is repeated over and over again? I gave you a bit of a hint just to make it easy this morning because... Some of you look sleepy. No one sees a repeated thing over and over again? No, that's the end. That's just one, one thing. That's a response. But this is something that's consistently in all the paragraphs. Probably should have given you the, the question before reading it through so you could be looking for it. And I gave you the hint. I said, what phrase or thought or word that you see over and over again in this passage. You should see highlighted over and over again the word word (laughs) or something related to the hearing of the word or the receiving of the word. We have here repeated over and over again from verse 44 or even going back to 42 that the theme here is they want to hear this preaching, this sermon again, or this teaching once again. And then they went and everyone came to hear what? They came to hear the word of the Lord. We even see that as they reflect upon the the Isaiah passage, that this is a light for the Gentiles. This light is the word. This is Jesus, the word, being a light to the Gentiles. And then we see that there's a distinct response difference from the Jews in rejecting the word and the Gentiles receiving the word. And so today I want us to look at that and see why Luke and, of course, God would want us to to look at this being a centerpiece to to the mission and ministry here. As God is spreading out the gospel, it is over and over again repeated to us the importance to the word so much that it says that when the Gentiles received it, they rejoiced and they glorified the word. Now, do we often think in that kind of context? Do we think about worshiping? Now, think about this. Worshiping God's word. Now, that seems a little odd. 
But that's what the word says, is it glorifies the word. It is a honoring, it is a uplifting, it is an elevation in a worshipful way of God's word. Is that a danger for us? Is that something that would seem odd in faith, that we would worship God's word? Now, when we think about having the word before us, we see it as, you know, it's information. It is a story. It is communication. But the Gentiles here glorified it. And so it was intriguing to me to think about this, that seeing it repeated over and over again, that this is all being centered about the word. I want us to investigate it. When we look at the word in action here, it says in verse 44, the whole city gathered to hear the word. That was verse 45, spoken by Paul. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly in verse 46 in response to the Jews' rejection of it. That it would be necessary, they told them that it would be necessary that the word of God be spoken to you, the Jews, first in verse 46. Verse 47, he reminds them that God has commanded them to do this, that this was something that they did out of obedience, that God's word told them to go to the Jews first. And in the highlights that they were coming from, the teaching from the Old Testament. And then when in verse 48, the Gentiles heard this. It's, it's this relationship with the hearing of the word. And then again, verse 48, the glorifying of the word. And then in verse 49, we see that the word of the Lord was spreading. And so it is very clear, it seems, that in the way that this is written, that our focus is to be drawn to the item of the word of the Lord. That they wanted to hear it and they didn't want to hear it. There were some that wanted to and there were some that didn't. There may have been some that wanted to hear it taught again, but they had not believed it in their hearts and they rejected it. But it's definitely being communicated to us that we should be perking up and be thinking about this great importance of what it means to actually glorify the word of God and how it was a problem for the Jews and it was a delight to the Gentiles. And as we think about those distinctions of the response of the preaching of the word, we should apply this into our own lives How do we respond? Now, I'm not saying that we should, you know, have some kind of shrine in our in our houses where we have the the Bible there and we we kind of bow down to it in that kind of worshipful way. But it does seem to be teaching us that it's important for us to have it elevated high in our hearts and our mind. And I think it would even be fair to say that as we consider our worship of God, that it's parallel. I know that in when I, where I have been working, uh, doing install work, it has been inevitable throughout my past 10 years that I will be getting a project and uh, usually about Friday or Saturday I'll start getting um, different contracts or, or you know, descriptions of what my job is going to entail for the following week. And being a busy person that I am, I often just want to cut to the chase. And so as John is sending me texts telling me that my my jobs have been uploaded to my app, and, and I'm good to go. I start asking him questions really quickly. Well, where, what are the cities that I'm going to be going to? And, um, you know, what, what project is this going to be? What kind of tools am I going to need? And I just start bombarding him with all kinds of questions. And guess what he always says back to me? 
<laughs> have you looked at the manual? Have you read the manual for what is going on? And I'm like, well, where is it? Well, I sent it to you, or it's attached to your particular files. It's, it's there. Have you read them? And I'm like, well, I just, I just want you to tell me these things. You've already read the manual, right? And he's like, yeah, I've read the manual. Well, what are these things going to be? And he's like, go read the manual. <laughs> and then often I find myself, and I hear of others, and I get calls all the time, Knox can, uh, can attest to this, you know, for myself and for others, but people will call me up and they'll say, hey, Charles, um, I'm at such and such job site, you know, wh- what am I supposed to do? <laughs> and then I'm like, well, in your manual, I try to do it really lightly. I says, well, the manual said that you should do this and do that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, good idea. Maybe I should read the manual. <laughs> That it's you know, easier to just give me the, 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 the minimum amount of possible so that we can accomplish the project that's at hand. And when I think about that, I often think that is the way we are as Christians. As Christians, we often we learn from hearing other, of other Christians' walks. We see other people living their life. We might think about a family member that, that seemed to have great faith and faithfulness and will we'll, We'll capture different little things. We'll say, well, they're doing it this way. And that's a thing that we do on the job site all the time. I know when I'll be working on something and somebody will come up that's a project manager and I say, well, why are you doing that? Or why are you using that bag of hardware? And I'll say, well, well, Randy, <laughs> Randy's done it that way. That's the way Randy told me to do it when I was working with Randy. And they're like, well, that's not what the manual said. And I'm like, oh, okay. So that means all the ones you've done are wrong. <laughs> you got to go back and redo it all. They're like, oh, no. And that's the way we live our Christian life. We'll just often learn from experience or just getting just the minimum amount of information that we can get so that we think that we're walking faithfully. And if it's like, well, if it works, and then it should be okay. Or if there seems to be fruit or nobody's yelling at me, then it should be all right. Until later on, weeks later, when you find out that you have to do a revisit without any pay, <laughs> and redo them all because you're an heir. This past week at the Together for the Gospel conference, it was an interesting focus that they had on missions. It was a one-half day that was very heavy on explaining to us about all of the unreached people throughout the world that live in areas or have languages that they do not have God's word in that particular language. And so there was definitely this admonition that we need to be focused on this as this is an important thing for the church to be involved in and to be supporting and and being heavy on but then right after that they had this panel and they had missionaries from different parts of the country explaining the conditions of their particular areas and one of the most loudest things that i heard and one of the most important things that i brought with me that all of these missionaries after generations of christian missions coming to their homeland or coming to the land in which they were working in, they had two primary complaints that they say that are destroying the church in these areas or the attempt to build and plant churches in these areas. And it's one, we're sending too many missionaries out on the field that have no connection to the church. They're not members of a church. They don't know how the church operates. They're not submissive to the church. And they were not advised or encouraged to actually be involved in missions from their church. They said it's astounding how many missionaries are out there that are unconnected or disconnected from the church, that they have some kind of personal purpose that they want to fulfill, but they are doing it separate from the church. They said, stop 
sending us missionaries that are not a part of the church. And then secondly, and maybe even more importantly, they said that you're sending missionaries to these countries that have no idea about God's word. They have an idea about missions. They have an idea about Jesus. They have an idea about salvation. But they're not getting most of their information and most of their um, their motive, motivation from God's word. Stop sending missionaries that are clueless about God's word. You are destroying the name of Jesus Christ in these regions, and it's destroying the opportunity for the gospel to actually be preached. But that's the two particular things, and then there was this encouragement to consider that there are new schools preparing, that they're having to, to, to step back and go, oh, you know, these very basic essentials need to be there before we actually put missionaries on the field. They have not read the word. They have not read the instructions. And we have the same problem in our pulpits today. That's the amazing thing that I've expressed to you all before about the Charles Simeon work that's been going on where they are teaching pastors on just simply expositing through the word of God to go through and quit bringing in all of our templates and all of our ideas and all of our frustrations and all the things that typically delight us, good or bad, it doesn't really matter, but that we would go through here and look at the word for what it is. And so in this particular case, as I'm looking at this passage, it is very clear that as Paul finished up his sermon, that there was a work being done in this ministry, in this bringing out the gospel and fulfilling the promises that God said that he would do on spreading the word to all the nations, that it was word-centered. Everything in these particular passages is indicating to us that there was the preaching of the word, there was the hearing of the word, and there was either the receiving or the rejection of God's word. And so as we consider not just the ministry of this church, and not just missions throughout the world, but our daily Christian lives, does your life reflect more like some of my installation jobs are? Where we've just gleaned a little bit from here and there, and maybe some kind of you know, inspiration verse that's on a calendar or on a meme, and we're trying to survive our Christian walk with very little of God's word. Here we see the big contrast. We would think that the two particular groups that are highlighted in this narrative, that it would be the opposite in their response. The Jews have been the ones who have been given God's covenant. These were the people who had God's word. They had been studying the Old Testament. The word was there before them, and now it was being proclaimed as being fulfilled in Jesus, and there was a rejection. The Gentiles had not received the word earlier. They, in many ways, may have been very ignorant of God's word, but they are the ones who actually received the proclamation of God's word concerning that Jesus is the fulfillment of it. This is a bit of a, a challenge for us to see how this could be the case. So in one sense, we see that there is this elevation and proclamation of the word, but we see that in many ways, based upon something, that it didn't even help them in their response. 
So what do we see here? Let's break it down to how they responded and what was going on so that we could hopefully discover what are the distinctions. Are we to just toss out the word and hope for the movement of the Holy Spirit because obviously the Gentiles didn't have it before? Are we to to be those who have a negative posture toward right doctrine, understanding that it could create a type of attitude that the Pharisees and the Jews had in this situation? Well, I think we need to get the answers from the word. Let's go here and break it down. We see that the delivery of the word is the action item of Paul and Barnabas. That is what they are to do. It is not the very thing that we can see that is obviously doing the transformation because they preach before the Jews and they're getting rejection. They're preaching for the, for in front of the Gentiles and they're getting reception. So it's not that the proclamation of the word itself is what's going to accomplish the response. But they are preaching the same word to both groups of people. So they have clearly indicated to us that it is important for us to have the word before us. We cannot reject the use of God's word in our ministry. It is something to be centered. We see that obviously so much that even as there is rejection of it, Paul and Barnabas increase their boldness in their preaching of it. They don't back down. They increase their obedience. And they're pointing back to that we're doing this out of the obedience of the Lord. They're showing forth their faith in God's command that they are anticipating that he will bring about the very work that he promises that he will do. Well, let's look at the response of the adversaries to God's word here. We see jealousy. We see contradiction. We see reviling. We see that they are thrusting God's truth aside. So the ones who have been taught the earlier parts of the Old Testament, they're now in a place where they are thrusting God's word and truth aside. And then their response is inciting and stirring up division and promoting persecution of the very messengers that God has given them to hear the word so much that they drove, they pushed, Paul and Barnabas away. So there's something very telling about their response to the preaching of the word, that their response to the preaching of the word was self-motivated. That their response to God's word was not word-motivated, but that it was self-motivated. It was jealousy that brought them to this particular place in their response. So it's not the right doctrine and the understanding of right doctrine that caused them to push it away. God's word says that they had jealousy in their heart so much that they started teaching against God's words that their response was to find ways to twist things so much that they would contradict. The other element that we see here is that they began to revile, to belittle. That their response was, in their nature, was that they would refuse it so much that it became a personal attack on the other people. That is not something that we see that is promoted in the heart and humility of what we're called to be as Christians. That it is not to be used as a personal attack. Now, it doesn't mean that we are not to admonish and to correct, but it became a reviling, this particular word in the Greek is not one that is ever used in a sense of a faith only person who can do reviling in a faithful way is God. 
That when men are in that kind of place, that it is in a, a negative, sinfully motivated way. And so they started thrusting, they started pushing it away. They started getting God's word as far from them as possible and actually bringing division and harm upon those. Well, we're not lacking that in our culture today, in the church culture today. One of the things that we can indicate is what is being, when we go and we see a church or we see a ministry happening, do we see people who are responding according to the word or do we see people responding according to their self-promotion? Do we see people who are wanting to dwell in the word? Or are we seeing people who are pushing the word away? As we heard about these missions in other countries where now we're in this epidemic problem that even though we may see Christian mission fields that have missionaries there, what the report is from many missionaries is that the word is absent in those places. They've push the word of God away so much that it's absent in their teaching. They're using teaching that is based upon so personal preferences that it's now become a very clearly demonic type teaching and how they are trying to build missions off of things that have nothing to do with God's word. We can see that there is a contrast there. It's not right doctrine is not the problem. Having a more, a better understanding of God's word is not the problem. What we see is that there is sin. And there is the absence of the glorifying and rejoicing in, in God's word. Well, let's look at the response of the Gentiles. It says the response of the believer is to be drawn to truth. That the presence of light and revelation is something that they delight in. That they are receiving, that they are being enlightened to God's word that their eyes are being opened from their darkness of sin and captivity of wrong thinking, that there's a transformation from darkness to light that leads to, as we see here in the scripture, salvation. That is a response that they are seeing that God's word is highlighting their sin and their need for a savior. Therefore, it's going to lead to rejoicing. There is a celebration of God's word. There is a glorifying or honor of God's word because they see that from it is the message of salvation. That it is truly good news for those who are languishing and dying in their sin apart from God. If we are a culture of people who are constantly speaking down about right doctrine, who is constantly speaking down about how bad the church is or all the hurt that has come from the church, we're missing the point. It is not the right doctrine that is the avenue of the harm. It is not the institution of the church that is about the avenue or the instrument of harm. It is the selfish, personal, individual, word-absent motivations that are bringing about the harm. It can't be the same. We can't make it synonymous. We've got to stop using language that makes right doctrine look like a bad thing. We've got to stop using language that the church is a bad thing. We've got to start calling a spade a spade, that it is sin, that it's selfish abuse of these things. Because if we use Right doctrine in the church as synonyms for harm 
and lording over people, we are going to cause people to stumble. We're going to misguide them. And that's why so many people are saying, you know what? When I think of right doctrine or when I think about people who are studying you know, deeply in the word, I often think of this situation that was harmful and hurtful and legalistic. And therefore, I'm pushing that away. And I'm going to go off of these other glimmers of things that seem to be based upon goodness and truth. And I think that's why we are in the situation that we are in the church today. I think that's why we're in the situation we are in the mission field today is the abandonment of the preaching and the hearing and the rejoicing and the glorifying of God's word. And that is what we're seeing here, that the foundation of God spreading the word and the gospel throughout was very much word-centered. And so we should hear this word and we should respond to this word by being very protective, but not just protective of this kind of ministry, but that we should delight in it ourselves and we should evaluate where we are. Now, I was so encouraged by that teaching on reformation. It's, it's a very, you know, might consider to be kind of a highbrow, you know, or not highbrow, but just kind of, you know, difficult doctrine to think about reprobation. But the teaching of it was very encouraging and helpful for me to see that, yes, there are some of you who are still struggling in, in seeing that faith manifested in your heart. There are some of you who are still struggling for sin with sin. And so, therefore, don't let that be the teaching of reprobation be one that would just crush you and bring you down. To guard people from taking that teaching, that is not what it is meant to be for. But there, there is a part of that teaching that is there to help those who are fully captive to their sin. And if you don't have that third component, what of those people? If we say, you know what, we don't want to talk about reprobation because I think it's been abused before or it might cause people to be discouraged. So let's just take that out. Let's take God's judgment out of that equation. Let's take that call to repentance out of the equation because that could cause some people to, to fall or to be discouraged, let's just take it out of our message. Then what of those people who are captive to sin? What of those people who have not heard that their, their actions are not honoring to God and will bring forth judgment to them? Do we not care? About those people? Do we not trust God enough here when he says that for some people that mercy is through fear? Do we not believe God's word? Do we think that we can invent a means to proclaiming the gospel that is outside of the very gospel, which is the call of repentance and faith? I would think that the answer is very much a no. Now, When we think about what should our ministry smell like, what should our lives smell like, what should our personal lives look like, what should our family's lives look like, I think we can also apply the same template that we see there is that do we spend, are we letting our lives communicate in our home a sense of jealousy toward other people? Do we tend to contradict when we hear people who are, trying to preach the word, or do we find ourselves at a normative place of our focus of ministry or faith is in the context of contradiction and reviling? I believe that is something that is very rich in our culture today, that we are actually measuring our faith in the goodness of what we believe 
by how clear we can make our reviling be heard to other people. That many ministries today and movements in church are defined and growing because of their ability to revile other people. It's not that they are able to proclaim that the good news is there. They are proclaiming that other people are bad news, and therefore you should come to us because we're not as bad as they are. That is not a way to have a ministry. It is not a way to be a Christian. Our Christian life should not be that way. But ask yourself, are you drawn to the Word of God? Now, just like we had in that teaching earlier, you may feel like, you know, I'm not really drawn to that. Well, the teaching teaches us to keep putting ourselves before it, diligently praying that through these means of God's Word, that He will bring forth the light that comes from the Holy Spirit. You might not feel like rejoicing or even glorifying the Word. It can be confusing for you. But there should be this hopefulness if you do have at least enough belief to think that his word is true, that you would still keep putting yourself before there. It is more than what you're taught that sometimes when you're feeling bad that you should smile and then maybe your emotions would come along with it. But it's not less than that, that if you know that God's word is where rejoicing is going to come from through his word and spirit, Put yourself in that place and ask God to enliven that. Do the act as Paul and Barnabas are doing here. They're not the ones that are bringing about the response amongst the hearers, but they are being obedient to proclaim the word. Now, there's something important for us to think about when we think about this ministry of the word, that the ministry of the word should have these particular components, and also our understanding of faith should have these particular components. That foremost, it is a historical covenantal proclamation of what God is doing. And when we think about our ministry, it starts with, it should start with the whole idea and understanding and the reality that God is the creator and we are the creation. And this is what we see here modeled for us in this particular sermon that Paul has given, that he's going back into history and he's laying forth the argument that this is what God has done and this is what God has promised. It's not starting with us first. That's one of the characteristics that you see in modern day ministry is that it often starts with our story versus starting with God's story. It often is going about our particular situation rather than the overarching story of what God is doing. So when you look at what Paul, how he's presenting the gospel, he's presenting it by pointing out what God has said, what God's deeds have done, and what his promises have been accomplished in by the fulfillment through Jesus Christ. So he's given this big picture, and he is also bringing it down to the person of Jesus Christ, which is not necessarily the second point of that, but it is the overarching thing, is that all of these things are found in Jesus Christ and in his death and in his resurrection and in his reign. It centers in the gospel. It centers in the work of Jesus Christ. It is not centered on the particular situation that's based upon someone's individual life that it's just that that's where it's all revolved in a lot of our stories of the gospel are very shallow that is based upon a particular individual in a particular situation and how god helped them with just this one sin 
And that's how we view God instead of understanding that Paul doesn't go back and he's, he's got plenty of stories to tell. He's got plenty of stories to talk about him. Now, he'll tell his own story in light of showing what God has done, but he doesn't focus on that. He focuses on the big picture of who God is and how that hope is found in Jesus. He's centering it in Jesus. He is not centering it into himself. So when we see those who are reviling shepherds, those who are abusive shepherds in the church, sometimes it can be confusing in how the approach is made from those who are protecting shepherds, who are, we are called to go and to make sure that there are no wolves, to push the wolves out of the flock because there are false teachers. And sometimes the approach may seem that way. It's very much like, when you consider predators in the church, they may seem like they're being very helpful to the church, that they're very sacrificial and very focused on the church at first. Their posture may be very similar as someone who is a good servant. You have a predator person and a good servant. Often they will look the same. Well, the same thing happens with shepherds. Sometimes you have the reviling shepherd and abusive shepherd, and sometimes their actions are very similar with the protecting shepherds. But we have to go further and we have to investigate deeper. Is the message and the focus from these particular shepherds, is it like what Paul is presenting here? Is it word-centered? Is it God-centered? And ultimately, more than anything else, is it centered in the work and the person and the life and the resurrected life of Jesus Christ? I know I shared the story with other people, but there are different times throughout my history and different ministries I've been involved in. We've, you can tell a difference in the fruitfulness of a ministry if it is focused on getting people in the word and hoping in Jesus Christ versus the peripheral fruits. If it is about the peripheral fruits more than it is, if you know more about the peripheral fruits that we hope for in the word, than you know of the word, then you're not being taught faithfulness. If you're celebrating your temporal life here more than the life that Jesus Christ has accomplished, you're not being taught right doctrine. They can seem similar, But the word is teaching us here that it should be word and Christ-centered. And then as we know from John 1.1, that it is Jesus Christ who is the word. That is why we glorify the word. We're not glorifying printed words on pieces of paper. We are glorifying who Jesus Christ is and what he has told us. See, God's word is the body of God's truth and love for us. God's spirit is what makes us alive to it. That is what brings forth the life in it that we have before us, ultimately Jesus Christ, but it's not going to be alive to us apart from the spirit. As you look at this, the only time that he is mentioned here at the end, but it is the highlight of it all, is that the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That all of this, positive response and this positive proclamation of God's word was with those who had the life of the spirit to be revealed to them. 
the person of Jesus Christ. And it's a hopeful thing that we have this. We saw it in Isaiah. And he goes back and he tells the Jews, he says it was in Isaiah that this is going to be a light for the Gentiles. That's the other element is that we too have been given a prophecy that there are going to be those who are going to revile. There are going to be those who scorn. There are going to be those who reject the word. That's not to cause us to stop. There are going to be those who abuse their sheep. There are going to be those who tell lies and who are going to be false prophets. That's not to deter us from the very hope that's in the word. It's actually a fulfillment and a conclusion of what the word has already promised us. We are not to push away the word of God because there are wolves in the flock. We're not to push away the truth and the proclamation of repentance and faith because for some there is the mishandling of it or even just simply the belief, disbelief in it. It says here in, that Paul and Barnabas, they shook off the dust from their feet when they left the Jews after the Jews had conspired an insurrection against them to push them away, they pushed away their insurrection and they went on with the work. They went on with the teaching. They went on with the proclamation. They didn't stop and cower back because they had opposition. They didn't stop and cower back because there was abuse amongst those who called themselves God's people, they went on, and they went on perfectly in the instruction that Jesus gave them in the gospel. It says in Matthew 10, verse 14 through 15, it says, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. He is proclaiming that there will be judgment coming upon those who reject God's word. Mark 6, 11, it says, If any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them, that even the leaving them and going somewhere else, continuing on in the ministry of God, will be a public testimony and a spiritual testimony to the heavens against those who reject it. And in verse 13 it says, And then they continued and cast out many demons, and anointing with oil many who were sick, and they healed them. But this continuing on in the ministry of the word is parallel to freeing people captive from sin. That this continuing on in the ministry of the word is what brings healing to hurting people. If we make it synonymous that right doctrine and people who are immersed in the word or people who harm the word, we're actually going in the opposite direction of what Jesus is saying is that you continue on with the right doctrine. You continue on with the preaching, not the abuse and the selfish reviling and the jealousy, but continuing on with God's word because in that is what brings healing. And then in Luke chapter 9, verse 5, it says, And whenever they do not receive you, and when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed, and they went through the villages, preaching the gospel, preaching the good news, and healing everywhere. And then here we see in Acts is that they went from this opposition and then they continued on and they went to Iconium and they preached the gospel. They with, continued with boldness and with obedience and they were filled with joy. And that's the other thing to consider. 
Does being in the Word of God bring you joy? Being under the preaching and the teaching of God's Word, does it bring you joy? It was a tremendous encouragement. I would say that I am somewhere in that middle place that we got in the teaching on reprobation today. There are times when I'm just like, I don't, I'm not stop feeling it. I'm just not seeing it. It was encouraging just, just like with Thomas, God gave me a measure of a display this past week to encourage my joy and encourage my faith. For me, I guess my, week is so, my faith is so weak that it took 12,000 other servants of God coming around and celebrating the unity of the gospel to kind of wake me up a little bit and jar me and put me back on course. That's, that was what it was designed for, was that these pastors have put together that conference and say, let's center this in the gospel and let's center this in the word. Let's really emphasize the word of God to encourage these servants that are out there because the battle is tough. Brothers and sisters, on one end, if you are ministering to other people, if you're ministering to them with anything other than God's word, whatever a little bit of encouragement they may get for a season, that will dissipate and go away and will not sustain them in their walk. And in fact, just like in the mission field, it may actually cause an adverse effect where there is greater unbelief and rebellion against God. But for you, who... Just like that teaching had, if you are like, I want to be like the Gentiles. I want to be like what they did there, where they responded in that way. Well, continue on in hope in the word. That is what God's word says. If you believe anything about Jesus, you need to believe his word. If you are longing to know where to find love or how to love, Jesus says in his word that this is love. That you walk according to my commandments. You walk according to my word. Do you want to know where to find love? Do you want to know where to understand love? Do you want to know how to love? Go to his word. Do not revile it. Don't let the culture make you make synonyms. You know, we're all concerned about pronouns. But we should be concerned about the culture's teaching of synonyms when we parallel the things that are the very essence of God's teaching with something that is wicked and wrong. We need to go to the place that God says that his living water is and where his food is. This table here does that same kind of proclamation. Here we are given so much of the story. We're, we know that God gave us the creation of the, of the wheat and the grapes that make the, the, the food and the sustenance that's right in front of us. But we also have the story how God has always been about saving his people. We are going to a Passover meal that reminds us of what he did when he saved his people from the captivity of Egypt. It's a bigger picture than just our small captivities. Not to say that it's not personal, but we want to go here first. We want to go to the person and the work of Jesus because that might and that strength is what will sustain us on the other sins and the other difficulties and the other doubts that we fight. It's not just one little victory here. It is the victory and dominion of the whole world. This table teaches us that. It teaches us what had to be accomplished for not just a Passover animal lamb, but for the very Son of God to he accomplished redemption of his people, for even those people that were coming out of Egypt. And for those people who, years after we are dead, 
that come to the knowledge of his word and truth that they will come to. This will be something that will be in dominion forever. And we are a part of this. His body was given to you. His blood was spilled for you. If you believe, but you believe weakly, this table is still for you. If you're in a height of your walk and you feel very inspired by God, this table is still for you. But if you're in your sin and you are still captive, if you're still stuck in Egypt and you're kind of content with being in Egypt, this table is not for you. But let us remind you, without being afraid to offend you, Egypt received judgment. And for those who do not hold on to Christ, it'll be even worse for you than the judgment that Egypt received. So come to the table with repentance and faith, but in hope. If you're weak and hungry, come and eat. But come, trusting in him, trusting in the word. We are doing this out of obedience to God's word. And he promises that he will fill you. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your table. We thank you for all the ways that you sustain us in your ministry. And we now praise you as we seek to continue in grace and obeying you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing.